Hello, it's Annie here. Welcome to Changes. We cover so many different types and facets of change on this podcast, but this week's episode gets to the heart of things. It's a story about marriage, family, health and grief, but at its core is love. Love at all costs and how love can change your life. That was the moment I knew. This is a man who has a deep, kind and quality of love that is exceptional. And he was making, as I write in the book, making love an action. He was making love a verb. It was a, it was a to love was a, he would stand in the rain to love. Tembi Locke is an actress and an author, and now the co-writer and executive producer behind the new Netflix series, From Scratch, which is adapted and produced by Reese Witherspoon and starring Zoe Saldana. The show is based on Tembi's life story, which she wrote about in her New York Times best-selling memoir. Her sister, Attica, is an award-winning writer who has worked on shows like the Emmy-nominated Little Fires Everywhere and is also an executive producer and co-writer of the series. Tembi has appeared on screen so much over her career. You might have seen her in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Beverly Hills, 90210 and loads more. But it's her life-changing story in From Scratch that she talks to us about today. As a student, Tembi left America to study in Italy, where she met and fell in love with her Sicilian husband, Saro. The romance was completely whirlwind and not without its challenges. They were from very different cultural backgrounds. Saro's family were traditional Sicilian people, particularly his father, and they rejected Saro for not leading the life that they expected of him. To then marry a black American woman only made matters worse in the eyes of his father and meant that Tembi was also not accepted. They persevered because of their love for each other, but whilst living in LA, Saro was diagnosed with a rare cancer, which meant that Tembi had to become his carer. In 2012, Saro sadly died. At the time, their daughter was seven. Tembi writes so beautifully about this in her memoir and speaks honestly about her experience of witnessing Saro dying. Her story is romantic, defiant and moving. It's about bringing families together, despite their differences, changing your life because of love and the challenges that come with that. It may even change your idea of romance and what it is to love someone. Please welcome to Changes, Tembi Locke. You wrote this Netflix series with your sister. Now, we're going to get on to that, but I wanted to put a quote to you from Attica, your sister, that I read in, in an interview, a gorgeous interview. She said, everything about your marriage, T, was improbable and wonderful and an incredible story, extraordinary in its scope. Can you tell us how you came to meet your late husband? First of all, I'm very emotional about that quote. So we, that improbable <laughs> yeah. love that she talked about the the improbability of that began with how we met i was a, a junior in college who left you know the sort of sleepy connecticut town where i was studying uh, art history and i got my passport and i went to italy to study abroad and i was walking down the streets of florence and we quite literally bumped into each other <laughs> I still laugh. Um, we bumped into each other and I was walking with a friend of mine who was an expat and she happened to know him. And so she was like, oh, okay, well, hi, Tembi, Saro, Saro, Tembi, da, da, da. And for me, it was like, 
oh, he's he's cute. And but you know, I, I didn't think much more of it. But he, for him, it was boom, immediate. Boom. Right. Boom, right? And in his telling of the story, and as he told it always, he was like, the he said, I just, he was like, it was like lightning just struck. And he, he was a chef and he went back to his restaurant and he was like, God, hey, I've met, like, I just met her. And they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he was like, I'd love to know her. I know she's it. They're like, you spent two seconds talking to her. How is she it? You know, but for him, he knew. And then he very, with great intentionality, pursued me. I was 20. He was 32 at the time. So he was 12 years older. Yeah. So I didn't know my you know as we say here my head for my ass I mean meaning like I didn't I could not have conceived of bumping into someone who would change the course of my life who would be a great Mm. and deep love for me I was 20 I was like oh I bumped into a cute guy okay where there's another cute guy a block away you know but because of his visioning for what could be he really inducted me into what could be the possibility of this relationship. And I can see now in retrospect that clearly there was a willingness to be inducted (laughs) into that space. Um, And there was a willingness to take that journey. And what was improbable about it is the fact that like, you know, he was Sicilian, he was from Sicily, but he was working in Florence. I had to go back to the States, you know, we come from two different cultures, languages, you know, economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds. Were there was so much that was different about us. Yeah. But what was the same was a commitment to say, well, we're going to just take a leap and we've got each other. The love that you had for him, you know, you describe it so beautifully in the book. You said there was no one with whom we could compare ourselves, no one who we could turn to for the ins and outs of long distance, bicultural, biracial love. That was scary, but it was freeing. For the first time in my life, I was making a brave, bold decision of the heart that felt expansive, intuitive, a wish from my soul. A wish from my soul, Tembi. Clearly, from what you're saying, you guys had tenacity. You had this kind of inner strength in and a belief in each other and what you could do together. Where does that come from? I think I spent the whole book trying to understand that. And what I came to is that it it has to come from someplace so deep within. I think with Sato, I had, and he had with me, a way that we could cut through the static, cut through the noise, cut through the conventional ways of being and Mm -hmm. drill down and just quickly and deeply access, like what is the most heartfelt thing we can do right now? And if we do that, if we do that, nothing can go wrong. I know that sounds almost in, not insane to say, but it's but it was it was just so clear with him. It was that wish of the soul because you know, look, early on in our marriage, I mean, there was his family who didn't understand him and didn't understand one just the kind of person he was in the world—an artful soul born to farmers, right? Who were like, go work the land, like you know, (laughs) save this amount of money, get this house, get your pension, write out this life, Mm -hmm. and you've done a good job. And he was like, hi, I want to sit under a tree and read poetry, and I like to cook. (laughs) And there was a mismatch. Yeah. And expectations put on him, right, that he wasn't able to fulfill. Yeah. Not, not, yes. And he couldn't because 
to do so would sacrifice a whole part of who he was. And it wasn't that he was sitting in judgment of that way of being. It just wasn't for him. Mm. And in me, my my parents were the first to go to integrated schools for the university. They yeah. came my family came out of the Texas, East Texas, Jim Crow, American South. And so the kinds of opportunities that were available were become a lawyer, become a doctor, get a solid professional yeah. job, yeah. you know, participate in this integrated America that yeah. pre- your grandparents couldn't participate in, we couldn't participate in until we were, you know, at, to college age. And so go do that. Here I am like, well, I want to act. Yeah. <laughs> right. And for them, there was no, there was this sense of like, well, we don't know how to help you do that. Yeah. And two, um, how are you going to provide for yourself? So there was always a kind of question at the margins of what each of us, Sato and myself, both desired for ourselves. And the margins of that were questions. Our family, society's questions, like, can you do that? What we chose to do was to slow down and say, well, I can't ignore this voice within. And the voice within is saying, go for it. And so we did that both in our sort of choices as professions, but we did it inside of our love, inside of our union and inside of our partnership. And it became the core value and principle of all the decisions we made. I think in some ways he had that a little more than I did, that connection to himself and his, his inner voice in a way that I think I had, but I was able to cultivate it more because I was his partner sure, and I watched you. him do it more. And then I became more comfortable doing it, right? I like talking about it. Thank you for asking because I hope that there's someone listening right now who says, oh, maybe I can do that too. Yeah. Like Sato always had, I always say he inducted me into a bigger vision of what could be. He always did that, Yeah. right? Uh, either in this, his understanding or version of what our love could be when he was like i'll come to america you know people eat all over the world yeah (laughs) when he was like you're going to be an actress of course you're going to be an actress and you're going to be great and you know at that point i didn't even have an agent it was just a dream like i was Mm -hmm. doing plays in college he was like yes he he just he could see it for me and it's like it's like his lived experience was defying expectations societal expectations familial expectations of him so maybe there was a a kind of element of like he had that courage because he had done it by leaving home by so it was kind of like it was practiced but you did too you did too a little i did did, yes but not to the point where you sacrifice your family yes exactly i mean he made big big sacrifices and when he left home to go study university he wanted to study like poetry and translation (laughs) they were like we do not understand what that is like that is you know and then he left school because Mm. he you know found his way into a kitchen and so he had always made these like left turns but he always said every left turn led me to you Was your childhood happy? Do you look back at it fondly, I suppose? I do look back at it fondly. Like everyone's childhood, it had its pains. The divorce of my parents was certainly a loss. I didn't... How old were you when that happened? Seven. seven. I was seven. So okay. I was the same age my daughter was when she, when her when Sato passed. Right. So what was interesting is I would not have characterized my parents' divorce as a loss. 
prior to losing my husband and being a parent to a seven-year-old who was grieving. But I could see that, oh, when I was seven, my life changed in a big way. And my parents were very loving and largely amicable in that process. So I didn't have one of those, you know, like television movie of the week, you know, uh, family divorces where people didn't talk and it was, you know, strife and yelling. It was none of that. But it was a quiet rupture and it hurt my heart, my young seven-year-old heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was the silver lining in that is my sister and I became like, you know, the best of the best because as we shifted and we went between homes through shared custody, we became our own little unit that I think only happened because of divorce. Yeah. What did your family think of Sarah when you brought him to meet them? <laughs> You know, it's funny. So my dad was like, I don't know about this. And not because it was like, because of anything that had to do with Sato. But I think it was just like, he just, he could not wrap his mind around the idea. You were still a baby for him. I was a baby. I was a baby. And I was like living abroad. And he was like, you know, and I was someone who did not have the kind of relationship with my father where we, um, you know, where I would tell him, oh, I have this boyfriend, or we did not have, like, we never talked about that. Like, I would talk to my my dad about politics, or my studies, or whatever, but not, like, relationship things. So I suddenly call him from Florence, and I'm like, um, so there's someone that I've met. (laughs) And he immediately was like, what? Like, antenna goes up. (laughs) But my stepmom, she knew. She was like, oh, I see this. I see the way he looks at her. This is a this is real. This is real. And she this is real. And yeah. so she was really our advocate <laughs> inside the family. And Wonderful. she was like she told my dad like no, you need to like zip it. <laughs> Just zip it. Zip it, dude, because this is happening and they are in love and look how he looks at her. This is a thing. And quickly my dad was like oh, he could see it, you know, and yeah. he adored Sato. You know, they had a lot of things in common. Sato was very well read as I said, poetry translation. And then my mom was like, he makes you happy. And so she was, you know, on board for that. I mean, I think, and I write about this openly, you know, in the book, she was a little like, oh my goodness, you know, just find you a guy in America, like find you an American black man and that would be just so wonderful. And But, you know, I think the wonderful thing about my parents is that very quickly they say, you know, we love you, we trust you. We're going to get out of your way. So whatever initial hesitations might have been there, they dispensed with them very quickly. And they kind of have that philosophy, both of them is like, we don't mess with people's relationships. Like, I'll weigh in on your grades. I'll, I'll, I'll like give you, you know, lots of professional advice, but we don't wade in the waters of affairs of the heart. Right. And I think that was a gift, right? And to not be the meddling parent in that way. And Sato didn't have that. He had the opposite experience. His parents were very much like, uh, we have our opinions and we're not going to be moved from these opinions. Um, And that was a part of the early conflict in our relationship was the fact that they rejected me and rejected the idea of our union. And they disowned him, quite frankly. I mean, that's what happened. And and what were their grounds for that? Their grounds for that were largely the fact that, one, there was, as I said, the initial father-son strife which had been which predates me so the father being 
angry because the son didn't choose to stay and, and farm with him and, and kind of yes. live that life that was expected. Exactly. So it was already, you know, had he was the the son who had didn't follow in the tradition that the family expected. So that yep. was already there. Yeah. And then when I came in, it was the idea that I was foreign. They were not worldly people. There was a there was a provincial quality to them. And for them, they really thought, like, it's going to be complicated to be married to someone who doesn't even speak the same, you know, <laughs> mother tongue issue. It's going to be complicated. Like, why are you complicating your life in these ways, you know? And she's not Catholic. And all Americans divorce. And she's black. And her parents are divorced. And, by the way, she wants to be an actress, which, oh my gosh, for them was the same thing as, like, you might as well be, like, I don't know, a circus, uh, you know, yeah. performer or a prostitute. Yeah. You know, like, an actor? Like, what yeah. is that? So it was a bridge too far for them. And they, it was easier to shut it all out, to say, no, thank you. You have made your path. We disagree with your path. We disagree with all the choices you've made, including the latest, which is to partner with this black woman from America. And you know what? You and his father said, I have no son. You have disappointed me to the level. I've, I, I, I have no son. The son, as I imagined, I should have in the world. I don't have that son, so I have no son. How did, if at all, they reconcile? That was me. <laughs> it began with me. They had to do the work, but I pushed, you know, I, um, what's the thing, Mohammed to the mountain? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the mountain to Mohammed. Um, I, because of the family that I come from, for me, it was unimaginable. And a parent and a child. It was just unimaginable. It was just, it was, it was unimaginable. And because I love Sato so much, I saw the pain that he was in. Mm. I saw the cost, the emotional cost of being exiled and rejected by his family. And although he covered it and although he was, you know, apt to say, it'll be okay, I have you, I knew that there was a deep grief within him that I suspected if we didn't, if, if I didn't try my best as his partner and as the person who loved him the most in the world to sort of like help him repair that, if, if it could be repaired, yeah. if we didn't make some attempt, he would always suffer a quiet pain yeah. that would eventually bleed into so many aspects of his life, including our marriage. And so, and I just loved it, but I was like, we got to do this. And I was also annoyingly optimistic and American. And I was like, oh my God, they'll love me. Like, I just need to get over there to Italy and they will love me. Like, they, you know, uh, they just need to know me. Yeah. I was like, okay, if they meet me and they don't like me, then they don't like me. But now they've never met me. They don't so right like now the they're just idea of, idea me. of yeah. me. And that is something I think we can get past. I was like, I think we can get past that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, you know, and I write about this in the book. I just, I booked a ticket and I kind of, you know, I ambushed him and I said, we're going, we're going to Sicily and you need to call, you need to call them. You need to write a letter. You need to do whatever. Tell them we are coming. And, you know, he labored over that letter, but he sent it. And um, back then, you know, he put it in the mail and we waited and we waited to see, was he going to get a response? Because they weren't speaking on the phone at that time. And we got a response that was, don't come. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, we've bought the tickets. We're going to go because I thought, you know, we get there, maybe they'll change their mind. And eventually they did. I mean, when I say eventually, we arrive, we, um, 
told them where we were. We checked into a hotel on the sea, not far from their town. And we said, we'll be here every afternoon. Come visit us if you'd like. And what happened is there was, there was a kind of um, word got out in town. <laughs> Yeah. In the small Sicilian town that yeah. saw it was on the coast with the American wife, and yeah, gossip yeah. started happening, and first cousins started to come visit us, and eventually, um, you know, my sister-in-law came, and, it, and my mom, and on the final day, his father came. Wow! And um, that began the repair work, okay. and over the the years thereafter, they, father and son, had to do the deep repair sure. work. Yeah. I, and when I would go, I'd be inside of their nuclear family, which was odd for me. Sure. And I didn't speak Sicilian. So I would just like have a book in the corner and I would like, okay, you guys talk amongst yourselves and I'm going to take photographs and read my book and I would journal. Yeah. And yeah. those journals became of course, the okay. tools that I referenced and that I went back to when, it, when I wrote the memoir because I had a kind of real time account of what it felt like to be inside of a family, a nuclear family, his family, that was trying to repair itself. Those journals were really, um, really instructive to write the book. And later t- for the series, I brought them into the writer's room and I would write, tell, read from my journals like the writers. I'd be like, guys, when I was in Sicily for the first time, here's what I thought and here's what I said. And yeah. all of that stuff sort of, I think, infused its way into the series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Tembi, if you don't mind, we'll go to the biggest change of your adult life now. Um, Tell us what you said for this, please. The biggest change in my adult life um, has been becoming widowed and being a solo parent. That in my adulthood, I would say bigger than even his diagnosis, bigger than being a caregiver, that was an unmooring of everything that I thought I knew, meaning um, to be left without my life partner, the person I'd spent half my life with and who was the father of my child, my lover, my best friend, my confidant. Like I suddenly I, I was dislocated in time and space. I just didn't. And that was grief. But that was also the specific relationship I had with him sure. and trying to figure out who I would be in a new life. So you're not only grieving the person you lost and the loss of that identity, I was also 
trying to understand who this new person I would be, you know, who I would become. So there, so that was a huge change in my adult life. And I was doing it at the exact same time that I was the only parent to a grieving child who had lost her father. None of her peers had been through anything like that. Who was at every day was like body shaking grief in those early months after her father passed away. And I did not have a childhood experience of loss. I had friends who had, who had lost parents and so I was calling them and saying, what, what do I say to her? How do I interact with her? What do I do? So there was this moment in my adulthood where all the cards, like sort of, it's, if the images, you know, they all were thrown up in the air, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know how this is gonna play out. I don't know how this is gonna land. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to put one foot in front of the other. I don't know that I'll be able to show up as the best parent I can be for her. Can I be a mother and a father to a child? What, how, how was the how and the why? Yeah. You know, the why was, why did this happen? And I knew I could never really understand, you know, and that was in, an unanswerable question. So yeah. I shifted to how, how can I do this? While you were caregiving to Sarah, would you mind kind of walking us through how long into the relationship were you, when you realized something wasn't quite right with his health? We had been married six and a half years. Okay. And um, we didn't have children. I was 30. I was like, we have all the time in the world. Like your career's going well. My career's just taking off. And I was big into like exercise and yoga. And so I took him to a yoga class with me. (laughs) (laughs) This was like, you know, he was like, okay, I'll go with you. And in the class, he started having some pain in his knee that we didn't really think much of it. And, but it persisted to the point where it was difficult for him to work and stand as a chef. Um, He was working at a a restaurant in in Los Angeles at the time and he was, every day was coming home and was like icing his knee and he was like, this is, something's off. We sought, uh, you know, advice from a doctor. Anyway, x-rays, MRIs, the whole thing, which led to a biopsy and before you know it, within I think the span of three weeks, they tell us that he has this rare soft tissue cancer which has um, metastasized to his bones and he was said you cannot work you you literally can't you should not stand on this leg because until you can have chemotherapy and eventually surgery Mm -hmm. you run the risk of shattering your bone you're going to need someone to care for you all the time and that was a big change in our lives. And this, this, this podcast is about change, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was a change for him. Every understanding of his identity, his way of being and his body changed in an instant. It changed me because I went from being a 31-year-old woman who had like an acting career who was taking off to being like, oh my gosh, uh, maybe I can't work so much. I need to be here for him. And I have to learn what it means to be a caregiver. Yeah. But then inside of our marriage, there was a shift and a change. I wouldn't call it a riff, but it was a a moment where we had to decide what kind of marriage are we going to have now? Because the things that we thought were ours are not ours. Right. Health, wellness, um, you know, and the, at the most intimate levels, everything changes when you go into chemotherapy. Your sense of sexuality, your sense of being, everything yeah. shifts. Yeah. So our marriage was in a new landscape as well, and our marriage changed. And um, we spent 
the first years of that experience very much just in survival mode. Yeah. Right? Just It was just survival mode. But as time wore on and as we realized that his illness was going to be another person in our marriage, yeah. <laughs> quite frankly, is yeah. the way I would say it. Yeah. Um, it was a third entity in our marriage that we had to address it as such and also decide what kind of marriage did we want to have, right? And that, when we did that, it deepened everything right. because we recommitted to each other from a different place. You became the caregiver. Yeah. How did that change your perspective on the relationship or change you? Well, it did two things. On the one hand, it changed things because I some days I was more nurse than wife. So yeah. I was like, and I don't like that. I was like, I want, the, I want to be the wife. I don't want to be the nurse right now. Yeah. But I also was able to observe a strength in him emerged that I didn't know and I had never seen. And I saw the ways in which his life became very still. Illness is a very clarifying experience. You really instantly see what matters most. So for him, all the, excuse me for this word, the bullshit fell away. And he was like, this is what matters most to me. And when I saw that in him, I could I loved him even more. Yeah. And he was willing to be more intimate with every person in his life because he understood how precious his life was. Yeah. And he didn't want to waste time on frivolous, like small talk. Like he just wanted to get right to the heart of the matter. So he upped his living game, like his his way of being in the world catapulted. And so I was watching that and I was like, oh my God, I couldn't love you more. This is hard. This is painful. This sucks. This is terrifying. But also you're a kind of an amazing human and you make me want more from life. You make this marriage a more intimate marriage because you're willing to have the tough conversations. You're willing to not hide behind some kind of you know masculine, like I'm gonna just get through this and tunnel and everything's gonna be fine. But you're saying, no, I'm afraid, I'm scared. Mm. I need you in ways I didn't know I'd need you and that makes me mad sometimes. He was willing to have the hard conversations. Mm. And he was also more tender in these ways. Like he would like strike up these beautiful conversations with strangers. When we had his memorial service, there were nurses who met him one time in the hospital and they came to his memorial service. Mm-hmm. And what that told me was, oh, he was able to reach in and connect to people in an instant. Mm-hmm. And it touched them in such a way that it ignited something in them that they felt seen, heard, connected. And that's why they're coming to his memorial service. Like, how did he do that? Yeah. It made me more attuned to the vulnerabilities of life. And I think it made me a better friend. It made me a better wife. It made me eventually a better mom. I don't know that this book would have gotten written had I not had those 10 years of being a caregiver because I was so afraid of losing myself inside of the big experience of cancer and caring for someone, I chose to write as a way to find my way through the darkness. Mm. 
it was like, I just need to do this because I need to write this down. Yeah. I need to say the things that maybe I can't say to him right now because yeah. it might hurt too much or maybe I'm just angry and resentful and I don't need Which to lay that Which is equally valid, his... but you oh need to gosh. be able to express yeah, that. Exactly. exactly. And so the page was a place that I, and I highly encourage people to do that. Oh, yeah. These are not eloquent, beautiful sentences. It's literally like, I feel this, I feel this, this happened. It, but it's a, it's a documentation. It's as Elizabeth Gilbert says, it's putting your handprint on the wall of life. Mm. I love it's that. saying, I've seen this, I've been here, I've experienced this. And I think that's what I was trying to do. And that eventually led me to the book, which has led to the series, which is, you know, just open my life in all new ways. So that's that's been a big change. Tembi, you describe the moment in the book of Sarah's passing so beautifully. And I wanted to ask you about that. You mentioned it at the top of the show, being at his deathbed, being there at the very precise moment that he that he passed. There's so much beauty in how you talk about your experience. And I think especially in in a world where it feels so taboo to talk about death, to talk about grief, to be near it, to touch it, to feel it. It's remarkable how you are able to talk about it and feel it and explain it in that way. You know, first of all, I want to say that was a passage that I really struggled with. Right. I mean, I, I, it's interestingly enough, when I wrote it, I didn't struggle with the writing of it. I struggled with whether or not it belonged in the book. Got you. And I almost didn't put it in the book because I was so afraid that it would take people out of the narrative. Meaning, to your point, you use the word taboo. Death is so, we're so, we're such a death phobic culture here right. in America for sure. Yeah. And we're a grief phobic culture. It's very hard for us to make space to even think about the idea that the other end of the spectrum of being born is that you are going to pass away. Like we are all, that is the one universal experience <laughs> you that can we will on. all have, right? Yes. And yet somehow we cannot talk about that. Yeah. So I wrote about it because one, I needed to, I needed for myself to write down what had happened. I just, for Tembi, if no one ever wrote, read that, or it was never made it into a book, I needed to document that for yeah. myself. And so when I wrote that passage, I put it away. But as I was crafting the book, and I knew that I was taking the reader through my experience of grief over those first three summers, those first three, you know, the arc of those three years, and I was being honest and authentic about everything else, I was like, but I think I need, the reader needs to be with me in that moment to understand why this grief feels the way it does. Yeah. Like they don't, won't understand the rest of the book if I don't actually offer up this one intimate moment. And also I had a desire to normalize being with someone that you love at the most vulnerable and important moment in the continuum of their existence. It is a privilege to be with someone when they transition and they leave this world. It is an absolute privilege. And I know many people yeah. don't get that privilege, either because of distance or sometimes people die suddenly. 
Sometimes people don't get the benefit of having a, someone at their side when they die. And I felt like there was something, there was a value in offering that up for the reader, for them to contemplate for themselves. What would they want? Would they want to be at someone's side? Would they want someone at their side? And if so, what that might look like. And because the way Sato had waited for me in the rain. We need to explain this quickly. I'm sorry for those who don't know. Early on in your relationship, you hadn't fully decided that you were going to be his girlfriend. You said, call in after work, come to my flat after the restaurant. You waited at the window. Then you got tired. You fell asleep. You woke up. It was lashing rain. He had been waiting outside for how many hours? Hours. I don't even really get, yeah, hours. He he just, again, this is pre-cell phone. This is all the things where it was like, that was the moment I knew. This is a man who has a deep, kind, and quality of love that is exceptional. And he was making, as I write in the book, making love an action. He was making love a verb. It was a, it was a, to love was a, he would stand in the rain to love, right? So at the end of our time together, in this realm as partners, as lovers, as best friends, as, as companions. It was my time to stand in the rain for him. Mm. And what I mean by that is to be at his side as he is leaving this earth. And that whole night, the nurses told me, it's beginning to happen. This is, this is sort of how, what happens to the body. This is, he's beginning to transition. We don't know how long it'll take. I then was like, I am here and I'm going to be present. That night changed my life. That was another change. That night changed my life. I'd never done that before. I'd never been bedside to someone for hours and hours as they're going through the labor of leaving their body. There's a labor to dying. Yeah. Just like there's a labor to coming into the world. And there are people who, they do this as a job. They're death doulas, the same way there's doulas who help women have babies. There's doulas who help people leave the earth. And I didn't know at the time, but the work, what I did was doing that night was the kind of the work that death doulas do. You sit bedside to someone, you, you caress them, you speak to them, you offer them comfort, you are easing them through the process. And so I wanted to take the reader into that room, make it as intimate as possible, as sacred as possible, so that if one day they have the opportunity for themselves to sit with someone, to be with someone, that maybe they will have a kind of a guidepost emotionally for the things that they might want to do, the ways they might want to be with their loved one. Part of me didn't want to write, it didn't want to share it because it was so intimate. But I thought, damn it, Tembe, you chose to write a memoir. Like you're putting everything out there. I think you kind of are cheating the reader and maybe cheating this book Mm. if you don't do this. And because it's also at the front of the book, I'm also setting the stage for the reader that we're going to get this intimate. Like for the rest of the book, this is like elemental to like what the experience of reading this book is about to be. It's it's on. (laughs) Like we're going to do this. And it's not that every moment is sad at all, but it's infused with a kind of intimacy and micro moments of closeness and togetherness it was terrifying to share so it changed me it changed me writing it it changed me choosing to include it in the book and it has changed me as readers come to that section of the book and write back to me or reach out to me and say thank you for including that I've had a moment like that or they say if I ever have a moment like that Hmm. and that's all I can do is I think that's what a mem- the role of memoir is to offer up our stories 
not because we're the only person who's ever been through any of this. That is not the role of memoir. The role of memoir is to say, I have experienced this thing that is so universal that should you walk through it, know that you can come through the other side of it. Well, it is such a beautiful memoir and I for one thank you for writing it and it's out now. If you're listening and you wanna you wanna read this, how could you not after hearing us talk about the book? And also the drama from scratch on Netflix now too. Uh, Tembi, what a pleasure. I thank you so much for your generosity and for speaking so openly about such precious details of your life. I think people will be so moved from this. Thank you. Thank you so much to Tembi. I just loved hearing from her. She was so passionate and just so kind of refreshingly honest about those moments in her life that were so intimate and so defining I suppose it really made me look at my relationship in a different way like it's hard not to listen to someone talk about being in love like that and then turn the mirror on yourself and think about the burping and the farting and the way they leave their socks all over the house and you know the way they brush their teeth that can really annoy you and (laughs) it's hard not to think about the reality of your relationship and wonder where all the romance has gone. I did go to tea after speaking to Tembi and say, we're not romantic enough, um, which got promptly laughed off. As I mentioned, From Scratch is on Netflix now and we're going to put a link to the memoir in the show notes as well. Let us know what you thought of Tembi and From Scratch and do share the episode if you think it's going to be helpful to anyone who's been through grief of their own or challenges in relationships. We are releasing episodes every Monday. We're also transcribing them and putting them on my website. So please make sure you subscribe to this. And if you do want to experience this in written form, you can read the transcripts of the conversations anytime you like on www.anniemcmanus.com. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.